Now, today as we go through this passage in chapter 14, we're going to find something remarkable. That while the earth is in the very middle of the tribulation, when it's at its peak, and it's not over yet, God is going to visit His people. He's going to visit the 144,000 and He is going to give them a new song in the middle of their trial. The song of the redeemed. I'd like to read it and we're just looking at the first five verses this morning. John says, Then I looked and there before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion and with Him 144,000 who had His name and His Father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they kept themselves pure. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They were purchased from among men and offered as first fruits to God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Father, we thank you for this morning and just the preciousness of your word, Lord. It's just even being able to open it and read it and study it and know that it's coming right from your throne and that you have delivered it to us that we might know the truth. God, thank you for being so open and so transparent and so desirous of allowing us to know the truth. And Father, we pray that you would allow it to touch our hearts today. All these things are going to take place in the future, possibly not very long from now, possibly after we're gone. But God, we can apply these truths today by your Spirit if you help us. And Holy Spirit, for that purpose, I ask that you would help me to speak and to teach in such a manner that were you here, you would be saying the same things, encouraging your flock encouraging those that you suffered and died for, those who you have planned for eternity and are preparing a place for that they would spend with you for the ages to come. God, open all of our hearts and give us a thirst and a hunger for more of you as we follow after you this morning in your word. And everyone said, Amen. We have to begin by answering two questions before we even begin talking about the text. There's a lot of confusion on this particular text. And, it, and it's grounded in, in the Lamb standing on Mount Zion. Because we know that according to Scripture, Jesus isn't going to come back until the millennial reign begins. And we're not there yet in the Scripture, in Revelation. We still have the seven bold judgments to go. And so, expositors and scholars have been confused about how the Lamb could be setting His foot down on Mount Zion, which we'll talk about in a moment, with 144,000 on earth. And so some, in order to uh, deal with that difficulty, is they've said, well, now at this point in Revelation, John takes a bit of a detour and it's not chronological any longer. And so this text is looking forward to the time beyond the seven bold judgments to the millennial reign of Christ. Now, I think you probably already know if you've been around uh, our church long enough and been hearing me teach on Revelation that I take a very literal approach. And I think that's how the Scripture should be taken, literally. And as I said before, all the prophecies in Scripture in the Old Testament were all fulfilled literally. There's not one that was figurative. They were all fulfilled literally and very specifically down to the T. 
And the same will be true of these prophecies in the book of Revelation. And the other thing that, uh, uh, that uh, I find interesting is that there's a pattern of John in this revelation. He keeps saying, if you look back through the book that we've studied so far, and even the ones that we're looking at, uh, the chapters ahead, you'll see John saying, and then I saw, and then he said, or then was revealed to me something. It was this, this sense of the next thing that happened was this. And so to all of a sudden take chapter 14 and say, well, the chronology doesn't work for us right here because Jesus, this can't be Jesus setting his foot down on Mount Zion because he's not going to come until after the millennial reign, I think is a mistake. And I think what we need to do is to wrestle just a little bit more with what this text means, and we're going to do that today and talk about that. So in terms of when this event occurs, I think it occurs right where it says it occurs, right in the middle of the tribulation before it's over and before the seven bold judgments come after the seven seals and the seven trumpets but before the seven bold judgments and where is it going to take place that's the second question well I've kind of already answered that the literal interpretation is that he's standing on Mount Zion that's as we're going to talk about in just a minute it's the earthly temple site in Jerusalem it's not in heaven there are going to be some of the events that we're going to look at today are taking place in heaven but according to the passage here, these events with the Lamb standing on the mountain of Zion are on earth in Israel. Now, the question is, well, how can Jesus be standing with 144,000 on Mount Zion and not come back yet? Because, you know, we, only know, we know He's going to come back at the millennial reign and He's not going to come back until then. So how is it that the Lamb is already standing on Mount Zion at a physical location? Well, I believe that it's very much in the same way that Jesus was able to visit the disciples for a period of 40 days after his death and resurrection. Do you remember in, that, in the book of Acts that there were 500 people that saw Jesus in his post-resurrection body? Was, it, was he physical? Well, yes, they were able to talk to him. They were able to be with him. But at the same time, it, it, it was a different body than he had. It was his resurrected body, not the same carnal earthly body, the tent that he had when he was on earth. And so I believe that Jesus, uh, in the form of the Lamb, having been victorious over death and Satan and sin because of his death as a Lamb on the cross, comes and he visits these 144,000 who are smack dab in the middle of the most horrendous trial this world will ever face. There are other occasions, if you're having trouble being convinced of that, in the New Testament when God, the Lord Jesus Christ, visits different believers in the book of Acts, even after his resurrection appearances. Do you remember when Paul and Silas were in prison and when Peter was in prison and there was this visitation, the angel of the Lord came and visited them. I, don't, I believe that that was the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe also that the Bible says in the book of Acts when Paul was uh, ministering and was being persecuted, the Lord came to him in a vision and he said, do not be afraid, but keep preaching. Keep being bold. And so I can't tell you exactly what form that this lamb is going to take in, in terms of his physical visitation. It may be a physical visitation. It may be a vision. But nonetheless, Jesus Christ is going to visit these 144,000 in such a manner that he will come down and make himself evident to these select group of people who are preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you something, as I studied this, I got so encouraged and built up. Can I tell you why? Would you like to be encouraged and built up? The reason I find it so encouraging is because by, the Bible says 
that if we are about the Father's business of proclaiming the gospel and making disciples, the Bible says in Matthew 28.20, I will never leave you or forsake you. I will be with you surely to the very end of the age. The Lord will visit us. He will minister to us through His Spirit in very powerful ways. And I have that happen uh, not every time I meet with the Lord, but frequently. And that can happen for anyone who is genuinely seeking God and wants to be a part of this great and magnificent plan that He has for His church. And so Jesus, in a very timely fashion, much as He did in the Old Testament in a theophany, which is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ, would visit the patriarchs to encourage them and bolster them and strengthen them. Jesus is going to come and set his foot on Mount Zion and he is going to meet with 144,000 in the midst of a terrible time of persecution of the church. And he is going to strengthen them and empower them and give them strength and boldness to keep going to the very end of that tribulation period. Now, John tells us that the Lamb is standing on Mount Zion and as I've said, this is always a reference to the city of Jerusalem where the temple was or the people of God or the actual city of, of Jerusalem, uh, the nation of Israel. And I'm thinking to myself, why Jerusalem? Have you ever thought that? Why has God got such a thing about this place? If you look in scripture, it's just like he's passionate about this geographical location. Listen to what he says through the psalmist in Psalm 132. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling. And this is a quote of God. This is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit enthroned, for I have desired it. Well, who's going to argue with that? He just, it's his divine selection. It's what he wants to do. He's God. He can do that. You want to hear something I think is as remarkable, if not more so? Is that he has said the very same thing about each and every one of you. I have chosen you. I have selected you. I have desired you. And I have taken up residence in your heart through the Holy Spirit. Now, go figure. I can't figure that out, can you? I can understand Jerusalem more than I can understand Him taking up residence in our hearts. I mean, look at us. Imperfect and frail, prone to sin, prone to wander. And yet God, in His infinite love, says, I have desired you. (laughs) I can't get over that. I just can't get over that that He wants us so badly and has such a deep love for us, even in all of our failings. Now the Lamb comes, as I said, and He's standing with 144,000. And the last time we spoke about these 144,000 was in chapter 7. And I want to just give you a quick recap of this select group. They're Jews from the 12 tribes of Israel, 12,000 from each tribe. I believe it's literally the 12 tribes and I believe it's a literal 12,000 and I believe it's a literal 144,000 collectively. And they're marked on their forehead to protect them all the way through this terrible time of tribulation. Now many saints will come to Christ. Many men and women will be converted but this is a select group who are especially anointed to preach the gospel and God says no one will harm you or touch you through this entire time of tribulation. But that doesn't mean that others who come to Christ during this time, and I think there's going to be a great harvest during this time, that does not mean they will be protected. Many, 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 I believe hundreds of thousands, possibly millions of men and women, will die for their faith during these very perilous times. And we also know that they are Christ's bondservants and ambassadors who have a very special task in anointing 
for evangelizing the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, it's worth noting that in chapter 7, these 144,000 are marked with a mark of protection that they should not be harmed by the beast or by the Antichrist or by the false prophet. And now here, in chapter 14, all 144,000 are meeting with the Lamb. Do you know what that tells me? God's pretty good at protecting those that belong to Him. Not a single one has been harmed. Not in, in, this is in spite of Satan's rage and anger that he wants to unleash on this special group of people. Can you imagine how, what a thorn in the side these 144,000 are? Can you imagine the, the anger and animosity in Satan's heart and his desire to destroy these 144? And yet with all of his devices and all of his power, he can't even get one. <laughs> You know what that means? You want to get encouraged? Thank you. <laughs> what that means to me is that the scripture is true. That God says not one will be lost. Jesus prayed that none would be lost. And Jesus says that no one can snatch you out of his hand. Or the Father's hand. And he and the Father are one. No one. So all 144,000 accounted for standing before the Lamb. And they have the name of Jesus Christ written on their foreheads. And again, this is in contrast to the mark of the beast, which was the counterfeit. It was the copycat efforts of Satan to, uh, to look like Jesus Christ. And they also had the mark of the Father on their forehead. And, you know, in Revelation 3, Jesus said this would happen. It's already happened to these 144,000, but Jesus says it will happen to us too. In his teaching on the church, these are the words of Jesus, He who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, and I will also write on him my new name. Well, so what? Big deal. You know, I mean, who wants to have a name on their forehead? I mean, it's, you know, I don't see any of you with your wife or husband's name tattooed on your forehead. I've never seen anybody with a name tattooed on their forehead. Have you? I don't know what form this mark will take. But last week, as I was preaching in the second service, God brought an illustration to mind that I didn't even intend to, to, to share. And I'm going to share it with you intentionally this time. And that's Toy Story. Has anybody ever seen Toy Story? I, I'm sorry, I've used this illustration, uh, not this particular one, but that movie a couple times. It's one of the few clean movies that, that's out there. And it's a great one. If you haven't seen Toy Story 2, it's clean and wonderful. And even better than the first one. But do you remember uh, Woody, the, the little, you know, uh, the, the, uh, the cowboy, you know, that flops around. He's a toy. And really, you know what this whole story about is about is about belonging and ownership, isn't it? When you really reduce it to everything, it's about the value that a toy has based on the owner's delight in playing with that toy. That's what the whole story is about. And it's about Woody going through an identity crisis because there's another toy, Buzz Lightyear, that, that, that looks like he might be stealing this special place in his owner's heart, which is Andy. And in the course of the movie, Woody lifts up his foot like this and he looks on the bottom of his shoe, and guess whose name is there? Andy. And that, for, for Woody, is everything. It means everything to Woody to know that, and to see the evidence that his owner and master's name is on his foot. You obviously know where I'm going with this. 
But it is such a privilege and a delight to know that God wants us that bad, that He puts His name on us, and the name of the new city that He's going to be bringing, and Jesus Christ's new name. And it's just like all over us, we're just going to be belonging to God. And for us, it's going to be like Woody, and we're going to say, Yes! We belong to Jesus! And He loves us! We're wanted! We have identity! We have purpose! We have meaning! We have value because the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the Creator of all of heaven and earth, has put His name on our foreheads. Isn't that wonderful? And that time is coming. But even now, the Scripture says that you have already been given a mark, a seal, a promise of ownership, the seal of His Holy Spirit. It's internal right now, but one day it will be right here But already God has set his mark of ownership on you, promising that one day you will be fully and completely and forever his. So exciting. So wonderful. We're so safe. And you know what? We're all going to make it if we keep our focus and our trust in Christ. Every single one of us are going to make it by God's grace. Now, John begins to talk about these sounds he's hearing in verse 2 he says I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder and the sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps and, and the question is what is this sound well some have suggested Jesus because it's very similar to what we find described in Revelation chapter 1 verse 15 you know the rushing water he speaks it sounds like rushing water peals of thunder so it, it could be Jesus that's speaking Another uh, uh, possibility is that this is the raptured church or the martyred tribulation saints. That's a possibility. Personally, I think uh, it's the angelic hosts of heaven. Now, any one of these may be right. It really doesn't make that much difference. But I believe it is because in Revelation chapter 5, one of the first times that we have a new song mentioned, there are only nine times in Scripture where a new song is mentioned, by the way, and two of them are in Revelation, and the first one is in chapter 5. And you know who's giving this new revelation? The heavenly host. It's the four living creatures, the 24 elders, and the hosts of heaven are just going ballistic, worshiping God over His redemption of mankind. And so I believe that quite likely this is the, the, the sound of the angelic hosts and that we have other evidence of this in chapter 19 of Revelation where again we, we hear the same description of the angels in heaven and all of, of, uh, of heaven uh, sounding like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing water, like loud peals of thunder, shouting hallelujah for the Lord our God Almighty reigns. And so I believe that the sound of rushing waters and these peals of thunder and even these harps playing their harps or the harpists playing their harps are these angels and the heavenly hosts. Now, what is it with harps? Why harps? Well, it's, uh, it's a wonderful instrument. If you, if you come to our, our Christmas Eve service, my mom plays here and is a, is a wonderful harpist. But why harps? I mean, why not something else? Well, it just happens that in the Old Testament that harps were an instrument that were played almost always in celebration. They were always an, an instrument that was played, uh, not exclusively, but most often played in celebration. We have accounts of, uh, for instance, Jehoshaphat in Second Chronicles chapter 20, coming back from a war, and, and they've gained victory, and they've been uh, saved and spared and protected by God. And so they're rejoicing over what God has done. And they enter Jerusalem and went up to the temple of the Lord with harps and lutes and trumpets and they just go off. And they worship God. 
And so I think that the, the idea of harpists playing their harps goes back to this, this, uh, this principle of, of overflowing worship for the great deliverance of God. And everything that we're going to be looking at today has to do with the redemption of Christ. The gift of God to mankind of eternal life. Now, John tells us that these singers are singing a new song in verse 3. They sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. This word new, it means fresh and unused. It has to do with a response of overflowing gratitude and appreciation and joy over the redemptive work of God in Christ. That's what they're excited about. They're just fabulously thankful and appreciative of what God is doing and what He has done. And so, uh, in Psalm 96, even the psalm that Ken read so wonderfully this morning, it says, Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Praise His name. Proclaim His salvation day after day. Declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous deeds among all peoples. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. That's our God. That's our Savior. That's our Lord. Sometimes I, I run out of words to properly express my appreciation and my joy in my walk with God. And uh, as you know, I have a, a habit of taking Mondays off for prayer and worship and being with the Lord and then once a month uh, to, to go away for a few days to just worship and pray. And oftentimes, God will give me just an overflowing excitement about Him. And I'll just get so built up. It's just me and the Lord, but I feel like He's touching down in a special way because I'm available and making time for Him. But He touches down in a special way in my heart and just strengthens me and builds me up. And as a result, I'm like, I want to sing something, but you know that's, that song isn't the right one. And then I think about another one I know, and no, those words aren't quite right. And no, that song, the tune isn't quite lively enough. And all of a sudden, I just start going off on my own and I start singing my own song. And I start making up my own melody and I start worshiping God. And you know, frankly, more often than not, it sounds pretty good. (laughs) And I start getting really excited about it and the chorus develops. And then all of a sudden, I start singing verses that go with it. And this happened this last Monday. I was, I was down at Kalapaki and I was worshiping God down there and, and I got tired of studying and, and praying for a while and so I get, got up and I, I do a lot of different things and I, you know, I, I, uh, at that point I was memorizing scripture and I left all my books and my Bible and my pen and paper and I went for a walk and I was memorizing scripture and as I was memorizing I was just worshiping God and he started giving me this really wonderful song I, and I wish I could sing it for you but I don't remember it. But anyway, I was singing this song and, uh, and it was beautiful. It really was and I thought I've got to write this down and give this to John, you know? And maybe, maybe it's, it's something that we could all participate in because it was just so beautiful. It really was. And so I'm singing this song and I'm adding verses and everything and I'm praying and I'm worshiping and then God just had me praying for a whole bunch of different things and just glorifying them. I stopped singing the song and I was just, oh, you know, I mean, I was talking people. It was a little uncomfortable because I was walking back to my Bible, which was by a chair. People were like, you know, I'm sitting here talking to myself, but I'm really worshiping God. And in the course of getting there, all of a sudden I realized I totally forgot how that song went. And I thought, how did that song go? God, give it back to me. But he didn't. This happens quite often to me. 
And you know, these songs that God gives me are new songs. They're new because they're unused. They're not, they're not somebody else's song, but they're a song that God gave me. Why? Because I was having a particular experience with God at that moment. And He wanted me to worship Him for it. And so He gave me the words and He gave me the tune so that at that moment I could worship Him in a very special and unique and, and really a private way. And, and to me, it matters that I forgot the song, but you know what? It doesn't matter at all to God because it, that's when He wanted it. And He gave it to me at that moment and I gave it back to Him in worship and it was gone. And you know what? Next week or the week after, He'll give me another one. And He'll do the same thing for you. As you come in His presence, He will give you new songs. And He will even give you new songs in the midst of crisis. In the midst of very difficult times, when you don't know what to do or where to turn, if you will look to God and you will make your business worshiping and following Him, He will put a new song in your heart. And you may get it written down or you may not, but it doesn't matter. What matters is that that you're responding to Him and He's filling your mouth and you're returning to Him what He has given to you. And so we find that these 144,000 are singing this song and and we're told that only they are allowed to sing it. They are the only ones that can learn it. Why? Because they are the only ones that have particularly and peculiarly gone through this tribulation period in a manner that God has designed for them. There are only 144,000 of them. They're the only ones that are marked on the head. They're the only ones that are Messianic Jews who are called to be completely sold out evangelists. Nothing held back. And because of that, their song is unique. And because of that, no one else can sing it. It's not just that they couldn't learn it. They didn't know the words. Other people couldn't grab the tune. It's not that. It's that no one else had embodied the experience of that song like the 144,000. And the same is true for you. God will give you a new song that no one actually can fully understand or comprehend its value or meaning. And frankly, I might think that my song is great. But it's because it has so much meaning to me at that moment because it's a new song based on my experience. And I might sing it to you and you're going, Try to, I think you need to go back and, and keep working on your songwriting because that sucks, you know. But for me, it's a beautiful song. And it's a new song because God gave it. And that's the case for these 144,000. And I'll tell you something is that Jesus says in John 14:21 that he wants to reveal himself to you. Jesus says, Whoever has my commands and keeps them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him, reveal himself. And as he reveals himself to you, he's going to give you just an overflowing, thankful heart. That's available to anyone if you're willing to follow him. Now John begins to describe these 144,000 there's seven things that he says about them and just before we talk about them I want to say that there's a cooperative effort that takes place in the kingdom of God. Don't ask me why God designed it this way. I think it's beautiful. Sometimes it's a little frustrating. The reason is is that God says that he will initiate everything and he does. But he gives us the opportunity to respond. It's really a cooperative effort between, in this case, the 144,000 and God. God redeems them, keeps them, preserves them, but God calls them to respond with fidelity, devotion, and purity. Paul talks about this in the book of Philippians, this unique combination of God's initiative and our response. Paul flips it around the other direction, though, when he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. 
Ooh, doesn't that make it sound like we've got a big job to do? Work it out. You know, you've got to make it. You've got to do it. Come on, you know. No, not if you read the second half of that verse. We do have a responsibility. But listen to the second part. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. So God initiates it. He wills it. He purposes it. And all of a sudden, we have this desire. Wow, I want to, I want to follow God more closely. And maybe that's going to happen to you even this morning. That's God initiated. But what he asks of us is, I won't, he says, I won't force myself on you. I'm going to stir up the desire. I will give you the power to walk with me. I will give you everything that you need for life and godliness in Christ Jesus. But I'm giving you the option to respond with fidelity and loyalty and love. And so these 144,000 have been redeemed. God has done something remarkable in their lives and they're responding. But we always need to get this straight. They weren't redeemed and forgiven because they were godly. They weren't redeemed because they were godly. They were godly because they were redeemed and forgiven. And that's always the direction we need to go. Our works, our joy, our service needs to be out of the overflow of our thankfulness to God. Not scrambling, tied up in knots, thinking maybe God won't love me anymore because I screwed up. Or maybe God doesn't love me because I'm not doing enough for Him. That's unbiblical thinking. The Bible says that you are redeemed and therefore you are godly. And your behavior begins to take on the characteristics of godliness as you respond to God. And that certainly was the case of these 144,000. And if we look in, in this passage here, we're told about these 144 in verse 4. These are those who did not defile themselves with women. Now what does that mean? Some scholars believe that this means they weren't married. That they were celibate. I don't believe that. And I'll tell you why. I could be wrong though, but I'm giving you my opinion on this. I believe that these were not necessarily celibates. This word defile means to smear or soil with filth. I have a problem with that because it relegates married people to the status of defiled. It says that if we're married, that somehow we've, we've fallen short of God's perfect purpose. God's perfect purpose is that we be celibate. That's not the case. There are certain ones that are called to that lifestyle, very few, but, but there are those who have that calling. But I don't believe that, that these are unmarried people who have, uh, uh, or, or, yeah, unmarried who have somehow prevented themselves from being defiled because they haven't married. It, this, this interpretation also fails to acknowledge that the word defiled is often associated with spiritual adultery, not physical adultery or physical sexual union, which is another problem. It makes sex look like it's somehow something ungodly and dirty and defiling. It couldn't be farther from the truth. Sex was God's plan, God's purpose, and he blessed it. And so that, I don't believe, can be the proper interpretation. My uh, take on this is that during this time of this worship of the idol that is erected to replicate the Antichrist, there will be worship of Satan in, in, in ways that are so ungodly that we can't even imagine them. We have pictures of it in the Old Testament because, of course, behind every false idol and every false god, there is the false worship. We know in the Old Testament that there was a, a common practice of temple prostitution. 
that took place. Somehow they, they got it so messed up because of Satan's deception that they actually believed that by sleeping with somebody else that that was somehow a sacrament to, to this God, this false God. And so there were female prostitutes and male prostitutes in these temples. And by going and, and sleeping with these prostitutes, you would somehow be making a sacrifice and it would be an offering, it would be a, a, a manner of worship of this false god. Totally carnal, totally un, ungodly. I believe that in these last days, although the, the revelation doesn't speak of it specifically, I think it's completely within the character of Satan, looking back at the Old Testament, to replicate that same kind of immorality and to introduce as a part of this worship of this false god temple prostitution and I believe that these 144,000 will not have defiled themselves with these women now bringing this closer to home because last time I checked I don't know of any temple that has this but the Bible says that in Ephesians 5.3 but among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or impurity or of greed for these are improper for God's holy people. Not even a hint. That means that if an unbeliever looks at your life, your neighbor across the street, there's not even a clue that there's anything inappropriate ever taking place in your life regarding immorality. That means that in your, in the, in your conduct with people that you work with and in employees and with co-workers, with friends and family and, you know spouses of friends that there's never a moment where there's any hint of immorality that's why uh, God I believe has uh, called me but I don't think just me but I think he's called all of us to a very high standard of purity that's why I don't ever ride in a car with a woman by myself unless it's my wife I'm never alone in a closed room with any woman that's not my wife I never counsel a woman alone unless there are people there or the doors are wide open and I'm sitting right out in the foyer it's not appropriate. It leaves the taste and the hint of sexual immorality. And I'd encourage you to hold to the same standard. Many men and women have been caught and ensnared by the enemy because they have failed to keep these basic and simple principles that there be not even a hint of any type of immorality. Now, I think it can also mean, in addition to this temple worship, that it's, it has to do with spiritual unfaithfulness to the Lord. Oftentimes in, in the Old Testament when it's referring to adultery, it's not talking about a physical adultery, but God is saying, you adulterous people, you know, you have tried to be a friend of the world and a friend of mine at the same time. You can't have it both ways. I want to be your only groom. I want to be your only lover. And when you go out and when we go out and, and try to be in the world and in Christ and try to live both worlds, God calls that spiritual adultery. And I believe these 144,000 kept themselves pure and undefiled, not stained or smeared or soiled by spiritual adultery. We need to be so careful that we don't have a love affair with the world while we still try to follow Christ. You can't do both. If you do, you'll be miserable. And your walk with God will never be what God has intended it to be. And you will never experience the joy of those new songs that God can bring. We've been promised to Jesus Christ... He doesn't want to share us with anyone. He's jealous. And to embrace the world and its sinful pleasures is to be guilty of spiritual adultery. And this group was not. We also are told that they kept themselves pure. Some of your virgins say virgin. Almost had trouble saying that. 
It signifies an exclusive commitment and devotion. Now some have taken this to mean that they were celibate, that they, they had never had sexual intercourse in their whole life. And again, I, I don't believe that uh, for the same reasons I told you that I don't believe that they had to be unmarried. I think a better interpretation is that they were completely separated unto God. They were set apart for Jesus Christ. They were like the ten virgins waiting for the Master to return. They were waiting. They weren't distracted. They weren't looking around and saying, well, until, until my guy comes, let me, let me see what else is out there and then I'll get my act together right before he comes. No. The ten virgins in Matthew were waiting. They were completely separated only for God. And I believe that that's what this passage is referring to. We also find in 2 Corinthians a figurative use of this word virgin where Paul says, I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you to him as a pure virgin. I think to myself, as I have counseled people over the past and marriages that are breaking up and seeing adultery, and man, if you've ever been through it, you know there, is, there are few things that are more crushing and devastating than infidelity. It's so alluring and so attractive, but it brings death. The Proverbs talks about this. It's like you're like bread in a basket and you're finished. It's all over. God is the one that instituted marriage. And marriage is really to be a reflection of our relationship with Him, not the other way around. Marriage is to be a light to the unbelieving world of what Jesus is like and His attitude and His relationship with the church. And sometimes, for myself, and maybe you can relate to this, I have found myself not realizing how much it hurts God's heart when I commit spiritual adultery. When I'm drawn to other things and I hardly have any time for Him and it's like everything else is more important in my life. And I just, you know, try to squeak in a few minutes with God every day. I think we can probably all relate to that. And I imagine to myself, if my wife did that to me, I'd just be devastated. I'd be devastated. I would miss her deeply. And I would be talking to her about spending more time together. And I think to myself that God loves us so deeply, He wants all of us. Each of us. Every part of us. He doesn't want to share us with this and that and the other thing. But He wants our whole heart. And He's looking for men and women that are willing to give Him everything that they have. And these 144,000 did. We're told as well that they follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Out of all the things that... Out of all these seven characteristics, I think this is probably the most spectacular. I believe this is one of the most authenticating signs of a true believer in the whole Bible. And that's that they follow Jesus wherever He goes. You know, Jesus said from His own mouth in John 10:27, My sheep listen to My voice and I know them and they follow Me. That's Jesus tests for a genuine sheep in His flock. He says they listen to Me and then they follow Me. How do we listen to God? Well, we listen through the Word of God. We listen through His Spirit speaking. That's how we listen to God. God tells us all kinds of things about Himself, His deep love for us, what He's initiated. He's really done all of it. All we have to do is say, yeah, I want that too. That's all. just wants us to respond. It's not complicated. It's very simple. It's actually quite uncomplicated. He invites us to a love relationship and gives us the choice to respond. But in here are the words. 
And he asks us to listen. It doesn't just mean to hear it. It means to really understand what it's saying. And then he says the second part of this is to follow him. How do we follow? We follow by being obedient to what we've read and understood and listened to. It's so simple, isn't it? I mean, it's almost embarrassing. Sometimes as a pastor, I feel embarrassed telling you such really simple things because I feel like this is embarrassingly simple. I, I, I almost feel like, you know, any, well, any one of us could get up here and, and share this truth. But God says to us, is that my sheep are those who listen to me, who are in the word regularly, who are exposed to my words and to my teaching and my desires, who are listening and developing and cultivating a a relationship with the Holy Spirit so that they can be tutored to Christ. And then whatever they hear, whatever it is, whatever it is, no matter how difficult or how challenging or how much change it requires, they say, well, that's what it says. I'll follow you, Christ. Now, I know a lot of Christians, and I've been one in my life, who claim to be a sheep, who claim to be a part of the flock of God, and hear the word of God, but don't follow. And yet I still say, hey, I'm a sheep of God. Yeah, right with him. Right with the big guy. But the Bible says no. The Bible says that a true sheep will listen and then will follow through obedience. And I just want to ask you, is that, re- is that really indicative of your life? Is it indicative of mine? Could people come around me and say, man, Frank or Mark or Bob or Sue or whatever your name is, look at them. They hear what God says and immediately, I can't believe it, that that was hard to do, but they just immediately dropped everything and they obeyed God. Not to go to some far off land, but in their marriages, in their attitudes, in the way that they speak to other people, in their love, in their response to God in every area. Man, I want to have that be the mark of my life, don't you? Now, there are sheep that hear the word and are actually God's sheep, but they're wandering sheep. And they're rebellious sheep. And every once in a while, there's somebody that thinks they're a sheep and they're a goat. They're not a sheep at all. But God has said that these 144,000 were men who followed the Lamb, followed Jesus, wherever He led. The Bible says that in 1 Kings, when we were talking about Baal last week and Elijah and his great victory over the prophets of Baal, that he came before the people and he said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If Baal is God, then follow him. But if God is the true God, then follow him. And I would put that you know, before you even this morning and just say, not in a rebuking fashion, but in, as, a, as an exhortation to you, is that who really is God? And if God is truly God, then follow him. In obedience. Do whatever he says. Let your life conform to his commands and his purpose and his design, not the other way around. Don't try to get God to bless your little life or my little life. That's the totally wrong direction to be coming from. We need to be going to God and saying, my life is not mine, it's yours, it's not about me, it's about you, and I will do whatever you tell me to do. Now these... 144,000, we're told, were also purchased from among men. It means to buy or pay for. It's the same word that was used in purchasing slaves in the market in, in, uh, in, in Greece, in the Roman Empire. And as believers, we've been purchased from the slave market of sin through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And these 144,000 had experienced that redemption. They were also the first fruits to God and to the Lamb. Now, there are two concepts with first fruits. First fruits... 
uh, has to do with actually a festival in Israel. It means it was the first gleaning of the harvest. And so as soon as the harvest started ripening, the first gleaning, gleaning would take place. And sometimes that was the best part of the harvest. And so the harvesters would go out and glean this harvest. And in the course of doing so, uh, they would bring it and offer it as a sacrifice to God. And so you've got two concepts here. One is that there's this sense of it's the first part of the harvest. It's looking forward to more. And I believe these 144,000 are just the beginning. They are the gleanings of this massive worldwide harvest that I think will take place in the end times. I believe that it's quite possible that the harvest in the final days will be greater than all of the history of humankind combined in the final days. And these 144,000 are the first fruits of that harvest. And I also believe that the other aspect of first fruits is the sacrifice, the devoted part of the sacrifice, which means they brought this first gleaning and they brought it before God and laid it on the altar. And these 144,000 had laid themselves down on the altar, a sacrifice that the gospel might be preached. We also find out that in this final passage in verse 5 that no lie was found in their mouth. It means no falsehood or especially no false religion. It it has to do with with, um, loyalty in our words. It has to do with uh, telling the truth and honesty. But it has even more to do with the fact that we are not sucked in by the lie of Satan. It has to do with not being hypocrites or false religionists, those who claim to know God and yet our life contradicts it. And of course this is in contrast to the unbelieving Christ-rejecting world at that time that will exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship the creator or the creation rather than the creator. And John tells us who is the liar? Who really is a liar? Well, we see all we see liars all the time. They're all around us. Sometimes we lie. But who is the real liar? Well, John tells us it's the man who denies that Jesus is Christ. That's the liar. It's a spirit of Antichrist. And these 144,000 had not, in the midst of the tribulation and the suffering and the persecution, had not denied Christ. And then finally, we're told that they were blameless. This is a mind-blowing thing. I want to just share this briefly. It means faultless, without blemish. They were perfect, right? They were sinless. Now, the Bible says that there is no man sinless except one, Jesus Christ. They're not sinless, rather they're blameless. They are without fault before God's throne because of the finished, redemptive work of Christ. The basis of our blamelessness is the same, the finished work of the righteousness of Christ. Do you realize right now, I don't care what you feel like, I don't care what Satan has been whispering in your ear, I don't even care what other people tell you. The Bible says that if you are truly born again, that you are blameless and faultless before the throne of God. Can you believe that? Man, I, I, it's, it's, it's almost so incomprehensible, it's hard to even grasp and get a hold of because I know myself. And to think of myself as being blameless and faultless before God is, a, is very difficult to comprehend. But that's what the Bible says is true about every man and woman who trusts in Him. God has done it. I just want to finish by asking you just a, several questions to encourage you to examine your own spiritual life. We have a wonderful example of a new song in a very trying time with these 144,000. We have John laying out the characteristics of these, of these believers, these tribulation saints. And I don't think it's just to give us information that we can go around and, and feel puffed up about. I think he's challenging us. God is letting us know what kind of men and women he's looking for. And I want to ask you, are you completely and exclusively committed 
to a love relationship with God? Or are you still wavering between two positions? God wants all of you. Anything less, He calls spiritual adultery. Is your life marked by a pattern of following, listening, and then following God in obedience? If it's not, why not? That's His plan for you. If you walk out of His plan, you walk out of abundance. If you walk in His plan, you walk right smack dab into the middle of abundance. Why would you cheat yourself? Why would you allow the enemy to convince you that to walk away from obedience is a gain when in truth it's a loss? Are you living for the purpose of God and His glory or are you still thinking that life is about you? God is calling us. I believe with all of my heart that the greatest days of the church are yet to come. I believe that God is raising up men and women all over the globe, even right now, who are totally sold out, totally committed, totally devoted, nothing held back for His glory and His praise and His honor. Don't you want to be one of those? Don't you want to be a man or a woman who's just completely given to your Savior? who has written his name on your heart and one day will write his name on your forehead indicating his complete ownership of us forever and ever and ever. God is looking for men and women like that and you can be if you just respond to his initiative. Even now, as scripture says, the eyes of the Lord range to and fro throughout the earth looking to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Let's be people like that. Let's be a church like that and bring glory to God as we await His coming. Father, we thank You for this time this morning. We worship You and give You glory and praise and thanks for this wonderful time of discovery in Your Word. Thank You that You meet us with new songs even in the midst of our trials and You've laid out the qualities of these 144,000 not to impress us or to make us feel bad but to, to give us something to aim for to realize, wow, You want us to live this kind of a sold-out life. And God, we ask you to forgive us for oftentimes living in two worlds. God, call us home. Call us home to an intimate, wonderful, uninterrupted friendship and relationship with Jesus Christ. You want it, and we do too. Let it happen. In Jesus' name.